Hey there, this is Alana Terry, and we're going to be talking about tips for your newsletter marketing today. And we're going to be looking at this in light of some of the ways that have been scientifically proven to make yourself more persuasive. So when you are trying to persuade your readers to take an action from your emails, in most cases, it's going to be the action is to buy a book, then we can use some of these persuasion factors in order to get the best results. So this will be especially useful if you email, but you feel a little discouraged because you don't really know what to say and you don't really feel as though your emails are doing much. You're just kind of like talking to a wall. So in no particular order, I want to go through things that social scientists have developed to talk about ways that people become persuaded for something. So one of them is going to be if there is social proof. And this is why in a lot of my backlist emails, I like to include reviews. I'll say something like, find out what readers like you are saying, and then I'll put a couple snippets from some reviews because we all want to be part of a tribe and a crowd. And so if you're inviting your readers to join this group, this community of readers, that can be really useful. And we also, in general, like to do what other people do. So instead of just saying, read this book, saying something like, join the hundreds of readers who have read this book can increase that sense of social proof. And this is connected to another persuasion factor that scientists call unity, wanting to be part of a community. So what I do is I refer to the readers on my newsletter list as the Alonitary Readers Club. If you listen to podcasts, a lot of podcasters come up with like cute or gimmicky or memorable names for their community. It's part of their branding and it also helps to create this sense of a tribe. And so if you can do certain things to build that sense of community, then your readers are going to be more persuaded to do what the people in your community are doing. This is why if you've got a Facebook group, for example, asking questions, leading engagement is going to be a lot better than just kind of being a bulletin board for things. So in your emails, you can talk about what other readers are doing, right? The readers like you love this because you can do things that build engagement. You can say, um, you know, a lot of authors will ask their readers to do a poll or something like that. Just anything that you can do to remind your readers that they are in this group. They're not just hearing from you. And it's actually not just a conversation between you and them. It's a conversation between them and everybody else on your list. And if you think about readers, especially in today's day and age, some of them might be shut in, some of them might be lonely, some of them might feel socially isolated. And so we're actually doing an amazing service when we create this sense of community for our readers. There's another factor. A lot of people just call this the like factor, which I don't necessarily love. Like, I don't think that you basically, when you call it the like factor, what you're saying is if people like you, they're going to be more easily persuaded to do what you want them to do. I kind of prefer something like trust or even just finding similarities. That's why when you are talking to a sales rep somewhere, they might ask you, you know, they'll try to find common ground. Oh, you're from Alaska. I've always wanted to go there, <laughs> right? Like even if it's 
you know, oh, you're from Alaska, my cousin honeymooned there. Finding things that can create, again, we're going back to the sense of community. So finding the things that are similarities between you and your readers can help them learn to trust you. I find this especially useful for people who are writing nonfiction. So if you're writing nonfiction and your goal is to help somebody overcome a problem, and that's what your book is about, you don't want to come across as the person who they can't relate to. You want to really drive home the point. I was where you were at one point. We are not um, so dissimilar, right? Uh, when people talk to me about time management for authors, most of the people who come to me for time management coaching are other parents because I get that. I get what it is to be a full-time writer who is also taking care of the family. So finding the things that you have in common can help them to trust you more, and it can also create that sense of unity. There's also a factor in persuasion called consistency, and this kind of rests on the fact that humans want to be seen as consistent. If I tell you that I like wearing blue, and then the next day you see me and I'm wearing purple and you call me out on it, that's going to feel a little strange to me. And so the way that we can do this with consistency is to remember once you've gotten somebody to do something like buy your book, it's going to be so much easier for that person to continue buying your book because in their mind, they see themselves as somebody who buys your type of book. Another way that consistency can work is even giving a a verbal or some other type of assent is going to make you more likely to do the thing later. So people who do polls will use this. They'll say, are you going to vote for so-and-so? And if you say yes, that actually the act of being asked and saying yes is going to make you more likely to follow through than if that poll person had never asked you the question. So you can even do this with pre-orders or things. Are you going to grab this book when it comes out? Or are you excited to read this book? And even having them hit reply and tell you yes is going to, it's, it's not just buzz, it builds momentum. And what that does is it makes them want to remain consistent. So for example, if you send out a poll to your readers and you say, how many books do you read in a week? or a month and they check the box it's whatever the highest is right i read more than 10 books a month or something then they see themselves as somebody who reads very voraciously that can actually prime them to read your book when it comes out because they want to be seen as consistent if you've got any type of authority we are very much primed to trust authority figures. That's why when you see commercials and things, you will have um, doctors recommend or things like that. So this can also be useful for fiction or nonfiction. For nonfiction, it's easier to explain. You can set yourself up as an authority by just explaining why you are qualified to write this book. And don't think about it as tooting your own horn. Don't think about it as bragging. Think about it as a way to remove some of the obstacles that people might have so that they don't quite trust you yet. And remember that once they get to that point where they do trust you, they see you as an authority, they're persuaded to buy your book, that's when you have the ability to really help them. So none of these persuasion factors are meant for us to use to get somebody to buy a book they don't want. 
we're way too ethical to ever want to do that. We can use these persuasion factors, though, to make sure that the people who really will be the most touched or uplifted or encouraged or inspired or entertained by our books are going to be the most likely to get it. Authority can also come in for fiction. I think about Nicholas Sparks, who I guess his story is he went around selling his books out of the trunk of his car, giving talks about like how to be more romantic with your, with your spouse or your partner. He set himself up as an authority in romance and therefore people were more willing to read a romance book by this author. So let's say that you write a book about uh, like a, a funny sitcom-esque kind of book about just family um, hilarious hijinks, right? Like just the crazy antics that come from being a mom with lots of preschool kids in your care or something like that. Mentioning in your bio that, you know, you've lived this out can be useful. Even like for me, my Alaska series, I mentioned these are written by a real Alaskan. There's a sense of authority that comes there. So even if you're fiction, you can kind of tap into that every so often. If there's any type of scarcity that is going to also make people more quick to, to purchase. So that is where things like, uh, short deal could work really well. This book is 99 cents, but only for this week. Or you could even do something like this book bundle is only available if you buy it directly through this link and it's only on sale until Monday, right? Anything that can drive scarcity can help some people. They want to read your book. They're going to love your book once they get it, but they still haven't taken that step to buy it. Putting a tiny bit of scarcity on there can actually really help them. When I send out emails, so if you're on the Successful Writer newsletter list. You will see a couple times a month, we do live trainings and you need to sign up for them ahead of time. And I'll send an email early in the week. So usually on Fridays and some people will sign up. I'll send an email midweek and some people will sign up. I'll send an email a few hours before we go live and say, guys, there's just a few more hours to sign up. And that's when the most people tend to sign up or at least, you know, 40 to 50% are going to sign up from that like last minute. So don't feel like you are burdening the people on your newsletter list. It is okay to mention things more than once, especially if you have a price going up. These are ways to create scarcity so that the people who are going to love your book, who want to buy it, but just haven't taken that step yet, are going to be reminded, right? The people who buy early Friday morning, when I say, hey, this webinar is about to start, they're not feeling, oh, she's twisting my arm and doing something I don't want to do. They're saying, oh, I'm so glad she reminded me because I've kind of been wanting to do this and I don't want to miss out. The last persuasion factor is reciprocity. And this is just, if you do something nice for me, I do something nice for you. I save this one for last because it's the one that I love the least. And it's the one that some people might just feel kind of squeamish about in terms of, well, I don't want to do something nice for somebody just because I want something nice back from them. And I totally agree. But I think where this can come in is remember that if you do do something kind for your readers, they are more primed to want to do something for you. So this is where things like maybe you do a free uh, couple days in KDP Select for your book. And instead of just saying, 
hey, you can get my book for free until Tuesday, which again, it drives scarcity, which is another good thing that we just talked about. But then you could say something like, after you grab it, I would love for you to leave a review, right? So I wouldn't use this one ever for, I'm going to do something nice for you because then I want you to kind of owe me, which is how, you know, an unethical marketer would treat it. But if you are doing something nice for your readers, then go ahead and squeeze in some something either in the same email or maybe right after that because when you've done something kind for them your like factor has gone up your trust factor has gone up and they are going to want to return that so i hope that those gave you some interesting ways to look at writing more persuasive newsletters. I don't think any of us needs to go into newsletter writing with that mentality of I'm gonna just twist everybody's arm just to make the sale, but we can use some of these to add just a little bit more persuasiveness, especially to get our on the fence readers into buyers. These are the readers who, like I've said before, they're, they wanna buy your books, they're curious, they're going to love your book when they get it. And they just need a tiny bit more, almost hand-holding through the process to become a lifelong fan. So hope that was helpful. And we'll talk next time. Thanks for listening to the Successful Writer Podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by BetterHelp that provides secure online counseling with a licensed professional therapist. I'm a really private person, so I was nervous to start counseling, but I'm really thankful for how easy they made the process. When you sign up, you fill out this form, and then they use your answers to match you with just the right therapist. It's easy to set up your appointments, and you can chat with your therapist via messages or phone or video, and you can also switch therapists anytime. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and they also have financial aid packages, so don't let the cost be the reason not to pursue talking to somebody. The writing life can be hard and sometimes lonely, and we're really not meant to go and do it alone. I'm really thankful for my therapist and for all the insights that have been coming up in my appointments. Like I said, I was pretty scared at the beginning because I didn't know what to expect, but now my biggest regret is honestly not doing it sooner. BetterHelp is giving successful writer listeners 10% off your first month of counseling. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Alana to start your therapeutic journey today.